Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 191, recorded on May 30th, 2021, from an undisclosed location. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. And we start this week with a follow-up to the Freenode Exodus we discussed last week. As we record, there have been a number of new developments. After the staff revolt, Freenode management took over hundreds of IRC channels for what they called policy violations. Essentially, channels that referenced moving to LiberaChat were seized and re-permissioned. This just seems like really weak sauce on Freenode's part. 700 channels being impacted, that's a major blunder. And it sounds like a poorly written script just went loose and caused lots of problems. And it doesn't make one confident that the new team running this thing has the experience or ability to run a large-scale IRC network. To make matters worse, the new management seems to be a bit, um, fluid in their interpretation of the network's policies. Several days ago, Freenode modified its off-topic use policy, forbidding inappropriate advertising, to read, Off-topic channels are required to act in good faith in accordance to the Freenode community as a whole. And went on to define inappropriate advertising to include, quote, unused channels for the purpose of polluting the channel list results. Or put another way, I think they're saying empty rooms that are just pointing users to another server are not permitted. So it appears, at least for a while, that the new Freenode management had chosen to interpret its rules in a way that basically disallows the promotion of competing services or networks. But as we record today, the policies have been updated again and no longer include that specific language, instead just listing advertising more generally. In response to the criticism of the channel takeovers, the new king of Freenode, Andrew Lee, posted a global notice across the network stating, in the recent policy enforcement, some channels were erroneously included. We greatly apologize for the inconvenience. Now, I'll just say that this has been a very complicated story since we started covering it, and it's definitely warranted a bit of a wait-and-see approach until more details could come to light. But right now, we've waited. And I think, unfortunately, we're seeing. I mean, even if you kind of interpret these actions in the most charitable light possible, as you mentioned, Chris, it's kind of just sloppy. It doesn't give me a lot of faith that these new stewards are in it for the best aspects of the community. And while clearly Freenode needed some cleaning up before all this incident, it seems like LiberaChat is off to a surprisingly good start with some new energy and momentum, and it might end up being in a better position than the previous incarnation of Freenode ever was. That's really it, Wes, is I think if you just took the last two weeks in isolation, you just forget about all of the previous history and all of the drama, and you just look at the two networks as two competing options for IRC users, LiberaChat has a really good track record the last couple of weeks. They have scaled up in response to an inundation of users and new rooms. They've also been keeping up for the most part with support tickets and communicating through social media outlets in a way that has been consistent and welcoming. And over on the Freenode side, uh, there continues to be decisions that were apparent accidents that maybe didn't mean to be done, but just, oops, everybody got upset and more people left. 
And that has been a pattern we're seeing over on the Freenode side now. And I think there's a statement that Andrew Lee gave to the register that, and it's a longer statement, but a part of it that I think really encapsulates where Mr. Lee's head is at. I understand the frustration these people feel after making decisions they regret. And if my being a target of their attack gives them purpose in life, I'm very happy and honored to be able to give them such purpose. I don't know how all the damage an attack on me helps push their agenda, though. The battle I'm fighting isn't about me. It's about FOSS and the internet. (laughs) If that just doesn't give you a little insight into where Mr. Lee's mindset is at, he's the victim in this scenario. Uh, And I think just looking at LaBear Chat uh, two weeks on, um, I'm pretty impressed, Wes. Realistically, I've been thinking, what should Jupiter Broadcasting do? Like, should I move from Geek Shed, which has been great, to Liberia Chat just to take advantage of the fact that a lot of our listeners may have set up connections to Liberia Chat now, and we'd like to be in on that conversation and hang out with all of our friends in the free software community. And I've been thinking about it because it's just, I don't know, it's fun to see excitement in some ways and people using IRC again. Um, but then part of me thinks maybe I should stay on GeekShed because maybe it would be great to have multiple large IRC networks and not just one large IRC network. That's one of the beauties of IRC is it's an open protocol. It does seem like they've got some great momentum going. Volunteers who've stood up, helped organize things in an atmosphere of confusion and chaos And, of course, with this exodus we mentioned, they've got some new converts over to their network. Folks like Gentoo, Fedora, and Ubuntu all having jumped ship and finding a new home over on LiberaChat. I still think there's a bit of a wait-and-see aspect here, though, because really, in the IRC world, it's the community and the users and the channels that are going to decide what happens here. Good news, everybody! Pwned Passwords has gone open source. Now, if you're not familiar, Pwned Passwords is the password search-specific feature for the Have I Been Pwned service, which aggregates all kinds of information from those data breaches that are always going on and tries to let you know when your information has been breached. Since its inception, it's really grown and now serves close to 1 billion requests per month. We should be clear, though, because it's a little confusing. The entire organization and website, Have I Been Pwned, is in the process of going open source, and the Pwned password search feature, that's the first step and one of the pieces we actually have code for now. Interestingly, too, the project is joining the .NET Foundation, and it will be the .NET Foundation's first incubation project. Troy Hunt, the original project author, and he's also a Microsoft regional director, he built the service on Azure. (laughs) So it kind of makes sense that it could end up here. He's open sourced the code for the pwned password search, so that way the project has a sustainable future and can start receiving community contributions. Troy put it pretty elegantly, but in short, it was, this has been a great tool for the community. Now it's time for the community to take care of the tool. For their part, the .NET Foundation will be providing various supportive structure and services. Think things like mentorship, sponsors, and administrative and technical services of all the other boring business-like things that just need to happen in the background. More interestingly, though, Troy Hunt also announced a partnership with the FBI. Apparently, they reached out to him and were wondering if they could submit fresh compromised passwords to the Pwn Password Service. How about that, Chris? 
I was like, wow, um, kind of spooky. But then I started thinking about it and it, it does, it does make sense. And as Hunt explained, you know, the FBI is really involved in all kinds of investigations. They come across all kinds of botnets and compromised passwords. So why not take that time that public money paid for to collect that information and give it back to a centralized database that can help people stay protected? It could be extremely valuable, fresh, relevant information that could be continually being added, assuming, you know, that the partnership works out and that the information they submit is accessible by us average folk. (laughs) It's kind of great to see the normally very secretive FBI opening up a little bit and working with open source. And speaking of secrets being revealed, the world was changed forever this week when Google's long-in-development, from-scratch, Linux competitor of an operating system, Fuchsia OS, finally shipped. Wah, wah, wah! Some owners of the first-generation Nest Hub received an update this week that changed the device to Fuchsia instead of the normally Linux-based Cast OS it was running before. In-place upgrade. How about that? Yeah, kind of sneaky. You got to be in the preview program right now to get it. It'll roll it out to everybody else over time, though you're not really going to notice because the front-end UI that the user experiences is a Flutter-based UI, so um, it runs the same on Linux and Fuchsia, (laughs) so you're not really going to be able to tell. However, if you go into the Google Home app, and you go into the settings for that Nest Hub, and you look at the legal notices, you'll notice there's a difference between them, I believe. Um, Because when I tap mine right now, I get a local port that's running actually on the Nest Hub, and it gives me the Android Apache license. So I'm going to keep checking that. I am in the preview program, but as far as I can tell, I'm not, I haven't switched over yet. But like I say, I, I may not actually even be able to tell once it's happened. It's like the most low-key rollout of this OS we've been talking about forever. We really have been talking about it forever, or at least you have. I mean, way back in 2016, I remember you covering the speculation when we first heard rumors about Fuchsia. I think that was Linux Action Show episode 431. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The rumors of a Fuchsia OS um, and the original articles are still on the web. And it's so funny because even back then we could smell it was a Linux replacement. Yeah, I think you picked up on that right away. It was also interesting to see that even way back then they were planning to use Flutter and Dart which is kind of strange because even this year we're introducing Flutter and Dart as something new that we kind of, you know, explain to folks that aren't in that space. Fascinating to see how long it takes for these things to actually get anywhere close to maturity. Even at the scale of Google, you don't launch these things and switch over in a night or a year or even a few years, which is why being here now, having followed it, it's both notable that we're seeing Fuchsia out in the wild And kind of extremely unremarkable. It's boring, and we've expected it for a while. But in all of this, I mean, it's still quite early, and probably we'll see more of these devices switching out to Fuchsia sometime in the future. Yeah, I could see that. I could see a lot of their kind of low-resource IoT-style devices getting Fuchsia, and then maybe another partner like Samsung, and it kind of just grows from there. And then, you know, years down the road, now it's the phones, and then it's the tablets, and then it's it's the Chromebooks. <laughs> just all one little, little chunk of land at a time. And if you're curious to see what Fuchsia's like, 
Well, uh, some developers out there that have put a lot of effort into making kind of like a mix of Fuchsia and Linux decided to put together a project called Portable Fuchsia Emulator, or F-Image. It just simply packages up the minimum you need to get a Fuchsia OS environment up and running in an emulator, and it includes a pre-built version of Fuchsia itself. And I mean, it's bare bones, but you can get in there, you can play around with it and actually see what this environment is like. Now, do keep in mind that what you'll have there is just the publicly available stuff in Google's open source code dumps of Fuchsia, just like how the Android open source project, AOSP, doesn't contain a whole bunch of the enhancement you've come to expect on your Google Pixel phone. This Fuchsia experience is likewise quite bare. But it's interesting to try, and it really is easy to get going. You just hop on over to the GitHub page, which we'll have linked in the show notes, download a big old zip file of the emulator and the emulator's base image, and then run a couple command lines on your Linux install, and you'll be playing with Fuchsia in no time. Unless you're spending all your time playing on your new portable Switch-like Steam gaming PC running Linux. Well, at least that's the rumor that just won't quit. And Sam Makovich over at Ars Technica says that Valve has been secretly building a Switch-like portable PC designed to run a large number of the games you see on Steam. And yes, it would be running Linux. And supply chain willing could actually ship by the end of the year. How do we know this? Well, on Tuesday, Steam DB operator Pavel Zundik spotted the change in Steam's code, which pointed to a new device named SteamPal. This mysterious device is very likely the subject of an announcement Valve co-founder Gabe Newell hinted at in a recent panel discussion earlier this month. That was leaked audio from the event. And unlike the Nintendo Switch, the Steam Pal will likely have a system on a chip that's something from Intel or AMD and not an ARM system. That's going to be interesting to see how that works. And it's unclear if Valve's going to have like multiple SKUs of this where you can have like different performance levels and battery life levels and, you know, other things in that regard. And really, to be frank, I don't really have a lot of hopes. Um, You know, I, I felt like I got a little burned on the Steam Machines thing. But when you hear Gabe talk about it and he's hinting pretty strong like this is going to happen, it seems like it might be more locked in than things typically are um, with the disclosure that, Valve is a very unique company with a very unique company structure and a very unique company time frame <laughs> known as Valve time. Yeah, that's right. We should be clear that the Steam Pal is still very much in the prototype stage and its features are subject to change as we've seen with other prototype hardware like Steam VR and the Steam Controller. But it does seem like the Steam Pal is being built with Linux in mind. Which makes a lot of sense when you look at the investment Valve has made in Linux and gaming and compatibility and Proton. They really put a lot of dollars and time into this. And you could kind of see how passing on a per-device cost for something like a Windows license wouldn't really play in a price-sensitive mobile gaming market. I would like to thank two of our sponsors for making this episode possible. And we start with Linode at linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards a new account. And of course, you support the show. Yeah, $100. And no matter what skill level you're at, noob or total expert, you're going to be happy with Linode. 
They are the largest independent cloud. Right there, that's worth it. 11 data centers around the world, right there. I love it. Super fast networking between the data centers and to the internet in general. Really quick SSDs. Their dedicated CPU rigs are crazy fast. They have dedicated GPU rigs and the value is there. 30 to 50% cheaper than quote unquote big cloud. And Linode started in 2003. They've been doing this for like ever in internet terms. Like when Linux was still figuring out how to do virtualization, Linode was there. They're like, all right, let's go. Let's figure this out. Let's build something. And they've stuck with it and they've refined it over the years and they've made it fantastic. Now here I come along, like a couple of years ago, I discovered Linode. I'm like, let's give it a go. I've heard about Linode forever. I've seen them at tech events, you know, specifically the free software open source community events, obviously. I've seen them sponsor some of the projects that I use and love. So I knew about Linode, but I hadn't tried them before. I tried them, didn't have a $100 credit like you get when you go to linode.com slash LAN, and I was blown away. It, it was like, you know when you live in the uncanny valley of, of, of hosted services where it's like, it's really good, it's like 90% of the way there, but every now and then I gotta do something that is just sort of outside the box, and that's where they kind of land in that uncanny valley. Linode, it, it closes the gap, it really does. It is everything I need, and then they back it up with amazing 24-7 customer support by phone or by ticket. And their easy to use powerful cloud dashboard makes it totally simple to take advantage of other services like their S3 compatible object storage, which Jupyter Broadcasting just uses the absolute snot out of. They have cloud firewalls and they have simple one click application deployments. If if a project you work with or a company or maybe it's a social event or religious event and you want to get into live streaming, but you don't really want to participate in the YouTube slog or the Twitch swamp, you ought to check out their one-click deployment of owncast which is twitch in a box and you can just go through their super easy to use setup wizard they'll deploy the linux stack and they'll deploy owncast and then it's all set up to update from the repos it works really great and you got twitch in a box you can also roll a machine and do PeerTube. that's the way i go but you gotta appreciate projects like owncast too they make it so much more approachable for people that are a little bit more casual about this kind of thing so you really got to go check it out for yourself and that credit that hundred dollar credit that's something i didn't have i you you know, I was on the fence. And if I would add $100, I think I would have started using Linode a lot sooner. So go to linode.com slash land, get that $100 60-day credit on your new account and support the show and make it possible for this here humble podcast to be free for everyone to listen to. linode.com slash land. Also a big thank you to my mobile provider, my mobile provider for years. Go to linux.ting.com and get 25 bucks off amazing wireless rates. <laughs> if you're sick of paying for cell service, and I can't imagine that you're not, you really should go see how much you can save and then take 25 bucks off that at linux.ting.com. You know, I really like Ting's new simple plans. I've been around for a while. So I, I've seen them try a couple of different takes at this and with this new generation of Ting plans, they've they've just nailed it. I'm gonna tell you about their set 12 plans, but I encourage you to go to linux.ting.com and check them all out. But what I like about the set 12 plan is it gives you 12 gigs of data, all right? Now, if you if you sync your podcasts and your your music before you get on the road, 12 gigs of data is, is a ton to work with. But here's what I love, because it's 35 bucks a month and you get unlimited calls and texts, right? So 12 gigs of data and unlimited calls and texts. And then you can add data, of course, and they have other plans I mean, you can you can just go to town with the data if you want. <laughs> they got plans for that, too. So there's a perfect fit for you. But I think that set 12 is really clever. If you're just smart about how you use your data a little bit, you could really save. I mean, $35 a month for a phone bill is just, well, I mean, when's the last time you've seen that? I, I don't even want to tell you what some of my family members are paying. I try to tell them. 
and try to tell them. That's why I move as many of them I can now. I move them over. I mean, the, the, the Ting dashboard, that switches them too when I show them that. Like, oh, that's way better. But, you know, you look at these prices now and these new these new plans they have. It's really appealing. It's simple to switch to Ting. And pretty much any phone's going to work on Ting because they have several networks they support. So go to linux.ting.com, check your current phone, then go create an account and, you know, pick the plan that's right for you. And you can either get a new device or, you know, bring your own and save some money. And then Ting's going to send you a SIM card if you keep your phone. They're just going to send you a SIM card. You pop that in. And then like a couple more minutes after that, you'll go through their website and you're done. You're you're like emancipated from your horrible monopolistic carrier and you're now on Ting picking and choosing your network with your unlimited calls and your unlimited decks and the data plan that fits your needs. I mean, it's just it's just so simple and it just gets even easier when you take 25 bucks off the top. So go to linux.ting.com, support the show and save some money. The next generation of Ting Mobile is here. So go see how much you could save and get 25 bucks off at linux.ting.com. The new owners of Audacity continue to make news, and it's not the good kind. This week, they announced a contributor license agreement will be added to the project, also known as a CLA for short. Future contributors to Audacity will be expected to sign this new agreement in order to add any code to the project. A GitHub discussion post titled Information about our new contributor license agreement explained that the purpose of the CLA is to provide future flexibility in altering, i.e. uplicensing or dual licensing, for the entire Audacity project, not just the parts of the code that we have written ourselves. I mean, obviously, the concept of a CLA isn't new to open source. That's not the issue here. Uh, I think it's that, simply put, the it's new to Audacity. <laughs> That's really the issue. And it's a huge change right after the whole telemetry debacle and just shocks to the system in general about the announcement. So that's sort of while everybody's still reeling from that. And unlike the quote unquote fake news telemetry announcement, the CLA has had some, but not nearly as severe of a reaction. And it seems like the messaging has been left to Audacity's new boss, Martin Curie, to just gather feedback, quote unquote, but really his contributions to the conversation have pretty much just been. The CLA was always going to be an issue many contributors would find unpopular. Yeah, and that's just kind of his take on it. Uh, yeah, yeah, we knew this one's going to be a problem, but look, uh, we got plans. Uh, you know, we got things we want to do. And this is the quintessential free audio editor. You know, it's currently licensed under the GPL2, and it seems there is an update in the works to take this thing to GPL3. And I, I think that transition has brought up this conversation. And in defense of them implementing a CLA, they cited platforms such as Apple's App Store that require software to be dual licensed, that you can't just ship a GPL 2 or 3 app on the App Store. And because they're going to go make millions on the App Store, it requires all of this effort. However, you can find plenty of examples of GPL software on the App Store, Nextcloud being one of the larger ones. Uh, Telegram is GPL as well. Some of them have come up with clever dual licensing schemes. Some of them have come up with uh, copying comments that uh, make things clear. But I, I just I feel like you can find hundreds even I'll link to a list of hundreds of open source of various open source licenses that we know that are in the App Store today and don't have CLAs. Some of them do, but there's clearly been proof in the public that it's possible with the challenge being here, of course, that Audacity is such an old project, lots of contributors, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, humanity is good at solving hard problems. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on here, and I think there are some let's say, adversarial readings of the initial post sort of explaining the motivation for the CLA. 
And yes, a CLA is not required to get a version of Audacity into the App Store. But I think some kind of relicensing is. Right now it's GPLv2+, which means it could be interpreted as GPLv3 as well. And you're right, Chris, there are definitely some GPL projects up on the App Store, but all the licenses of those, well, it's not really clear. Telegram claims it's all GPLv2 for the client, but there's actually no license file in their GitHub repository for it, and there are some open issues questioning just what is the license here. And as you mentioned, NextCloud, well, they had to update things and actually add a specific exception to the license, which I think technically changes the license from being GPL to being GPL plus exception. To do that in Audacity's case would require kind of the same effort that they're doing with the CLA, namely going back, finding all the contributors who've got big major chunks of code in the code base and getting them to sign off and agree that, yes, okay, we're okay with changing the license for the code we contributed and adding this exception. So I think there's one version that you can understand from the project's perspective or from a business perspective of you're taking the time right now to go through and contact and find all these contributors, get them to approve this change. In some ways, if you think you ever might need to do something like that again, it kind of makes sense to get this done with the CLA so that you have that option and don't have to repeat this in the future. Again, I don't think it's necessary, but you can see how if you're already making that effort from the business perspective, it makes sense to get things more in your control. Right. And they've gone through a similar process with their MuseScore application. In fact, they even talk about maybe potentially they could, you know, the applications could share code at some point. This could mean that Audacity could have VST3 support. And so when you lay it all out there and you make the, you make a pretty good case, I say I'm all for the CLA, actually. But what I'm also all for is a community fork of this thing. I'd like both things to exist. I would like a free, totally unencumbered version of Audacity that has no telemetry. It has no CLA. It is a true specimen of free software because at the end of the day, that's why Audacity mattered more than anything else. I mean, it is a tool that we use and it's an important tool, but it was also what it represented. It was a free software audio editor, the quintessential one. And I, I feel like that on its own is important and should exist. And so I would like to see a fork happen. And then I would like to see Audacity proper, whatever you want to call it. Go on, add your telemetry, add your CLA, add your VST support share UI code and whatever between Muse and this. I don't care. Let's see where it goes. Have at it. You know, you, you've you've done your, your purchase. You now own it. You can control it. Do what you like with it. But I'd also like the fork to exist and see where both of them go. And that's the beauty of open source. You're right. I mean, relicensing aside, as long as this thing is out in the open, no one can really take it away from us. And the flip side of that is reading through the discussions on on this commentary, on the discussion post on GitHub, it really is quite interesting. There's a lot of names you might recognize in there. If you're at all curious about this, folks like Hector Martin or Falk TX, the uh, notable Jack and Carla and Katia developer. And one of his comments really stood out to me because he, he sort of mentioned he thought about contributing to Audacity before. And I don't think he loves there being a CLA. But he listed some of the reasons that, you know, it was hard to contribute to Audacity problems, even just getting it to build on Linux. And when you go look at some of the commits in just the recent past couple of days, the past few weeks, those are things that this new team is clearly putting effort into. It's, it's hard to say. I am of two minds because the GPL especially and CLAs, it's a little bit of a weird mix. But if this actually means a lot of new core development for Audacity, it might just work out for the best. 
And I totally appreciate that the situation was easier for Nextcloud to deal with because they were a newer, younger project. They, you know, they could get access to the developers that were active and Audacity has a much uh, longer legacy than that. But I can't help feel like there's a bit of a shared theme between our first story and our last story. You know, Freenode also involves a takeover that kind of comes in strong. Maybe they don't fully appreciate and understand the community and interact with the community in a way that really is successful. And there's a bit of a shock to the to the whole thing, too, which I feel like happened in the Audacity case. There, these parallels are playing out at the same time. And I feel like it tells us a bigger meta story about corporate governance and free software project takeovers. And it seems like the lessons still haven't been learned. You and I have some firsthand experiences with mergers and, and, and these kinds of mixes, and sometimes they can go well and sometimes they can go wrong. And I think we're kind of seeing a couple of them happen at the same time right now that make me really uncomfortable. And it makes me feel like if people just were a little bit better about managing community and interacting, a little more open to doing things in a different way with a different culture than, you know, Bill, this is how the business does it. And this is how the lawyers tell us to do it. So we're always going to do it this way. And maybe being a little more receptive to how the free software community works, like just those basics, Wes, just those basics, Wes, would make sense such a huge difference in these transitions. And it's funny we're seeing them play out at the same time, in my opinion. No, you're absolutely right. But I think it's kind of a little bit on both sides. And it it highlights the tension between, you know, open source and the community and the grassroots nature of it and the business side, which often provides a lot of the funding and, of course, leverages open source to no end for their own profits. And that's where it's hard. We have a lot of discussions about how do we fund open source development? How do we make sure that the, you know, the free software we use and love and rely on keeps going? But we seem to then also throw up a lot of barriers when there might be some interest in funding it. I don't think we have a solid idea yet of exactly how we want these different but aligned communities to really work together in the long run. It is an age-old problem. Sustainable development and funding of that software development, which is inherently expensive, and the freedom and flexibility to be a free software project that truly is about its users first and not monetization. And it is such a tricky balance to get right. Uh, and we're watching it play out right now on, on two really important uh, backbone pieces uh, for the open source community, Audacity, the audio editor, and Freenode, the chat network. But looking forward, it seems that uh, Tesla is looking at funding some Linux development. They have an opening right now for Linux game development at Tesla. The job post that we found reads, Some of you might have heard, our dear Techno King is bullish on games and making an awesome platform for all gamers in Tesla vehicles. The latest Model S on our website can give you a hint of what we're aiming for in terms of platform compatibility. Sorry, can't divulge much more for now. The Tesla infotainment OS and platform software are based on a standard Linux, so of course we're interested in helping the gaming community make Linux gaming excellent. Yeah, they have several open Linux positions. I knew that. Um, and we'll link to this one just because gaming is so funny. And it's so it's so funny when you think of a, of a car company picturing the user playing games in their car. But it's obviously a way to kill time while you're waiting to charge. Why not? <laughs> I mean, you got like, you know, maybe 20 to 40 minutes. You need to charge up your car at a supercharger or something. Maybe you're on a road trip. Get out, stretch your legs, and then you got a few more minutes to kill. So why not do some gaming on your huge Ars Tesla screen? <laughs> I love it, Wes. Sounds like they're looking for candidates with experience 
experience and excitement for building open source software based on open source stacks. Things like Linux, Mesa, Vulkan, OpenGL, and hey, maybe you even have some experience with Proton, Lutris, or Wine. They also note they want folks who are happy and willing to contribute back up to the community. I wonder what kind of Tesla-authored commits we might be seeing. I say it's going to be a flop, Wes. I mean, who needs this when you're going to have your Steam Pal with you in the car, right? (laughs) This is, who needs any of that? But whichever one of these mobile Linux gaming monster ships, and of course, all the other things that happen in the world of Linux and open source, we'll let you know right here every single week. So go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. You digital nomads out there, don't miss this week's Linux Unplugged. My guest tells me how he learned Linux and built a total automation system in his school bus that he's converted into a home. It's an incredible journey of learning, and it will be in Linux Unplugged, episode 408 at linuxunplugged.com slash 408 when it publishes. As for us, we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. 